Section 0. Preface to the Golden Bough, Volume 1, Part 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 1, by James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Preface When I originally conceived the idea of the work, of which the first part is now laid before the public in a third and enlarged edition, my intention merely was to explain the strange rule of the priesthood or sacred kinship of Neme, and with it the legend of the Golden Bough, immortalized by Virgil, which the voice of antiquity associated with the priesthood. The explanation was suggested to me by some similar rules formerly imposed on kings in southern India, and at first I thought that it might be adequately set forth within the compass of a small volume. But I soon found that in attempting to settle one question, I had raised many more. Wider and wider prospects opened out before me, and thus, step by step, I was lured on into far-spreading fields of primitive thought, which had been but little explored by my predecessors. Thus the book grew in my hands and soon the projected essay became in first a ponderous treatise, or rather a series of separate dissertations loosely linked together by a slender thread of connection with my original subject. With each successive edition, these dissertions have grown in number and swollen in bulk by the accreditation of fresh materials, till the thread on which they are strung at last threatened to snap under their weight. Accordingly, following the hint of a friendly critic, I decided to resolve my overgrown book into its elements, and to publish separately the various disquisitions of which it is composed. The present volumes, forming the first part of the whole, contain a preliminary inquiry into the principles of magic and the evolution of the sacred kingship in general. They will be followed shortly by a volume which discusses the principles of taboo and their special application to sacred or priestly kings. The remainder of the work will be mainly devoted to the myth and ritual of the dying god, and as the subject is large and fruitful, my discussion of it will for the sake of convenience be divided into several parts of which one dealing with some dying gods of antiquity in egypt and western asia has already been published under the title of adonis atis Osiris. but while i have thus sought to dispose my book in its proper form as a collection of essays on a variety of distinct though related topics i have at the same time preserved its unity as far as possible by retaining the original title for the whole series of volumes, and by pointing out from time to time the bearing of my general conclusions on the particular problem which furnished the starting point of the inquiry. It seemed to me that this mode of presenting the subject offered some advantages which outweighed certain obvious drawbacks. By discarding the austere form, without, I hope, sacrificing the solid substance of a scientific treatise, I thought to cast my materials into a more artistic mould and so perhaps to attract readers who might have been repelled by a more strictly logical and systematic arrangement of the facts. Thus I put the mysterious priest of Nimi, so to say, in the forefront of the picture, grouping the other sombre figures of the same sort behind him in the background, not certainly because I deem them of less moment, but because the picturesque natural surroundings of the priest of Nimi, among the wooded hills of Italy, the very mystery which shrouds him, and not least the haunting magic of Virgil's verse, all combined to shed a glamour on the tragic figure with the golden bell, which fits him to stand as the centre of a gloomy canvas. But I trust that the high relief into which he has been thrown in my pages 
will not lead my readers either to overrate his historical importance by comparison with that of some other figures which stand behind him in the shadow or to attribute to my theory of the part he played a greater degree of probability than it deserves even if it should appear that this ancient italian priest must after all be struck out from the long roll of men who have masqueraded as gods the single omission would not sensibly invalidate the demonstration which i believe i have given that human pretenders to divinity have been far commoner and their credulous worshippers far more numerous than had been hitherto suspected similarly should my whole theory of this particular priesthood collapse and i fully acknowledge the slenderness of the foundations on which it rests its fall would hardly shake my general conclusions as to the evolution of primitive religion and society which are founded on large collections of entirely independent and well authenticated facts friends versed in german philosophy has pointed out to me that my views of magic and religion and their relations to each other in history agree to some extent with those of hegel the agreement is quite independent and to me unexpected for i have never studied the philosopher's writings nor attended to his speculations as however we have arrived at similar results by very different roads the partial coincidence of our conclusions may perhaps be taken to furnish a certain presumption in favour of their truth to enable my readers to judge of the extent of the coincidence i have given in an appendix some extracts from hegel's lectures on the philosophy of religion the curious may compare them with my chapter on magic and religion which was written in ignorance of the views of my illustrious predecessor with regard to the history of the sacred kingship which i have outlined in these volumes i desire to repeat a warning which i have given in the text while i have shown reason to think that in many communities sacred kings have been developed out of magicians i am far from supposing that this has been universally true the causes which have determined the establishment of monarchy have no doubt varied greatly in different countries and at different times i make no pretense to discuss or even enumerate them all i have merely selected one particular cause because it bore directly on my special inquiry and i have laid emphasis on it because it seems to have been overlooked by writers on the origin of political institutions who themselves sober and rational according to modern standards have not reckoned sufficiently with the enormous influence which supposition has exerted in shaping the human past but i have no wish to exaggerate the importance of this particular cause at the expense of others which may have been equally or even more influential no one can be more sensible than i am of the risk of stretching an hypothesis too far of crowding a multitude of incongruous particulars under one narrow formula of reducing the vast nay inconceivable complexity of nature and history to a delusive appearance of theoretical simplicity it may well be that i have erred in the direction again and again but at least i have been well aware of the danger of error and have striven to guard myself and my readers against it how far i have succeeded in that and the other objects i have set before me in writing this work i must leave to the candour of the public to determine j g fraser cambridge fifth of december nineteen ten preface to the first edition of the golden bough for some time i have been preparing a general work on primitive superstition and religion among the problems which had attracted my attention was the hitherto unexplained rule of the african priesthood 
the late spring it happened that in the course of my reading i came across some facts which combined with those i had noted before suggested an explanation of the rule in question as the explanation if correct promised to throw light on some obscure features of primitive religion i resolved to develop it fully and detaching it from my general work to issue it as a separate study this book is the result now that the theory which necessarily presented itself to me at first in outline has been worked out in detail i cannot but feel that in some places i may have pushed it too far if this should prove to have been the case i will readily acknowledge and retract my error as soon as it is brought home to me meantime my essay may serve its purpose as a first attempt to solve a difficult problem and to bring a variety of scattered facts into some sort of order and system a justification is perhaps needed of the length of which i have dwelt upon the popular festivals observed by european peasants in spring at midsummer and at harvest it can hardly be too often repeated since it is not yet generally recognized that in spite of their fragmentary character the popular superstitions and customs of the peasantry are by far the fullest and most trustworthy evidence we possess as to the primitive religion of the aryans indeed the primitive aryan in all that regards his mental fibre and texture is not extinct he is almost up to this day the great intellectual and moral focus which have revolutionized the educated world have scarcely affected the peasant in his inmost beliefs he is what his forefathers were in the days when forest trees still grew and squirrels played on the ground where rome and london now stand hence every inquiry into the primitive religion of the aryans should either start from the superstitious belief and observances of the peasantry or should at least be constantly checked and controlled by references to them compared with the evidence afforded by living tradition the testimony of ancient books on the subject of early religion is worth very little for literature accelerates the advance of thought at a rate which leaves the slow progress of opinion by word of mouth at an immeasurable distance behind two or three generations of literature may do more to change thought than two or three thousand years of traditional life but the mass of the people who do not read books remain unaffected by the mental revolution wrought by literature and so it has come about that in europe at the present day the superstitious beliefs and practices which have been handed down by word of mouth are generally of a far more archaic type than the religion depicted in the most ancient literature of the aryan race it is on these grounds that in discussing the meaning and origin of the ancient italian priesthood i have devoted so much attention to the popular customs and superstitions of modern europe in this part of my subject i have made great use of the works of the late w Manhart, without which indeed my book can scarcely have been written fully recognizing the truth of the principles which i have imperfectly stated manhart set himself systematically to collect compare and explain the living superstitions of the peasantry on this wild field the special department which he marked out for himself was the religion of the woodman and the farmer in other words the superstitious beliefs and rites connected with trees and cultivated plants by oral inquiry and by printed questions scattered broadcast over europe as well as by ransacking literature or folklore he collected a mass of evidence part of which he published in a series of admirable works but his health always feeble broke down before he could complete the comprehensive and really vast scheme which he had planned and at his too early death much of his precious materials remained unpublished his manuscripts are now deposited in the university library at berlin and in the interest of the study to which he devoted his life it is greatly to be desired that they should be examined and that such portions of them as he has not utilized in his books should be given to the world of his published works the most important are first two tracts roggenwolf and roggenhund danzig 
1865, second edition, Danzig, 1866, and Die Corner Domänen, Berlin, 1868. These little works were put forward by him tentatively, in the hope of exciting interest in his inquiries and thereby securing the help of others in pursuing them. But except from a few learned societies, they met with very little attention. Undeterred by the cold reception accorded to his efforts, he worked steadily on, and in 1875 published his chief work, De Bornkultas, der Germanen und Eker nach Barstam. This was followed in 1877 by Antike Waldan His Mythologische Vorschangen, a posthumous work, appeared in 1884. Much as I owe to Mannhardt, I owe still more to my friend, Professor W. Robertson Smith. My interest in the early history of society was first excited by the works of Dr. E. B. Taylor, which opened up a mental vista undreamed of by me before but it is a long step from a lively interest in a subject to a systematic study of it and that i took this step is due to the influence of my friend w robertson smith the debt which i owe to the vast stores of his knowledge the abundance and fertility of his ideas and his unwearied kindness can scarcely be overestimated those who know his writings may from some though a very inadequate conception of the extent to which i have been influenced by him the views of sacrifice set forth in his article sacrifice in the encyclopaedia britannica and further developed in his recent work the religion of the semites mark a new departure in the historical study of religion an ample trace of them will be found in this book indeed the central idea of my essay the conception of the slain god is derived directly i believe from my friend but it is due to him to add that he is in no way responsible for the general explanation which i have offered of the custom of slaying the god he has read the greater part of the proofs of circumstances which enhance the kindness and has made many valuable suggestions which i have usually adopted but except where he is cited by name or where the views expressed coincide with those of his published works he is not to be regarded as necessarily assenting to any of the theories propounded in this book the works of professor g a wilkin of leyden have been of great service in directing me to the best original authorities on the Dutch East Indies, a very important field to the ethnologist. To the courtesy of the Reverend Walter Gregor, M.A. of Pitzlego, I indebted for some interesting communications which will be found acknowledged in their proper places. Mr. Francis Darwin has kindly allowed me to consult him on some botanical questions. The manuscript authorities to which I occasionally refer are answers to a list of ethnological questions which I am circulating. Most of them will, I hope, be published in the Journal of the Anthropological Institute. The drawing of the golden bough which adorns the cover is from the pencil of my friend Professor J. H. Middleton. A constant interest and sympathy which he has shown in the progress of the book have been a great help and encouragement to me in writing it. The index has been called by Mr. A. Rogers of the University Library, Cambridge. J. G. Fraser Trinity College, Cambridge, 8th of March, 1890. Preface to the Second Edition of the Golden Bough The kind reception accorded by critics and the public to the first edition of the Golden Bough has encouraged me to spare no pains to render the new one more worthy of their approbation. While the original book remains almost entire, it has been greatly expanded by the insertion of much fresh illustrative matter drawn chiefly from further reading, but in part also from previous collections which I had made, 
and still hope to use for another work. Friends and correspondents, some of them personally unknown to me, have kindly aided me in various ways, especially by indicating facts or sources which I had overlooked, and by correcting mistakes into which I had fallen. I thank them all for their help, of which I have often availed myself. Their contributions will be found acknowledged in their proper places, but I owe a special acknowledgement to my friends, the Reverend Lorimer Fison and the Reverend John Roscoe, who have sent me valuable notes on the Fijian and Waganda customs respectively. Most of Mr. Fison's notes, I believe, are incorporated in my book. Of Mr. Roscoe's, only a small selection has been given. That whole series, embracing a general account of the customs and beliefs of the Waganda, will be published, I hope, in the Journal of the Anthropological Institute. Further, I ought to add that Miss Mary E. B. Howitt has kindly allowed me to make some extracts from a work by her on Australian folklore and legends, which I was privileged to read in manuscript. I have seen no reason to withdraw the explanation of the priesthood of Africa, which forms the central theme of my book. On the contrary, the probability of that explanation appears to me to be greatly strengthened by some important evidence, which has come to light since my theory was put forward. Readers of the first edition may remember that I explained the priest of Africa, the king of the wood, as an embodiment of a tree spirit, the inferred from a variety of considerations that, at an earlier period, one of the priests had probably been slain every year in his character of an incarnate deity. But, for an undoubted parallel to such a custom of killing a human god annually, I had to go as far as ancient Mexico, now from the metrodome of St. Decius, unearthed and published a few years ago by Professor Franz Gumont of Ghent and Elector Boylan Diana, volume 16, 1897. It is practically certain that in ancient Italy itself a human representative of Saturn, the old god of the seed, was put to death every year at his festival of the Saturnalia, and that though in Rome itself the custom had probably fallen into disuse before the classical era, it still lingered on in remote places down at least to the fourth century after Christ. I cannot but regard this discovery as a confirmation, as welcome as it was unlooked for, of the theory of the Arician priesthood which I have been led independently to propound. Further, the general interpretation which, following W. Manhart, I had given of the ceremonies observed by our European peasantry in spring, at midsummer, and at harvest, has also been incorporated by fresh and striking analogies. If we are right, these ceremonies were originally magical rites, designed to cause plants to grow, cattle to thrive, rain to fall, and the sun to shine. Now the remarkable researches of Professor Baldwin Spencer and Mr. F. J. Gillen, among the native tribes of Central Australia, have proved that these savages regularly perform magical ceremonies for the express purpose of bringing down rain and multiplying the plants and animals on which they subsist, and further, that these ceremonies are most commonly observed at the approach of the rainy season, which in central Australia answers to our spring. Hence then, at the other side of the world, we find an exact counterpart of those spring and midsummer rites which our rude forefathers in Europe probably performed with the full consciousness of their meaning, and which many of their descendants still keep up, though the original intention of the rites has been to a great extent, but by no means altogether forgotten. The harvest customs of our European peasantry have naturally no close analogy among the practices of the Australian Aborigines, since these savages do not till the ground, 
but what we should look for in vain among the australians we find to hand among the malays for recent inquiries notably of mr j l van der Thurn in sumatra and of mr w w skeet in the malay peninsula have supplied us with close parallels to the harvest customs of europe as these latter were interpreted by the genius of Menhart, occupying a lower plane of culture than ourselves, the Malays have retained a keen sense of the significance of rights which, in Europe, have sunk to the level of more or less meaningless survivals. Thus, on the whole, I cannot but think that the course of subsequent investigation has tended to confirm the general principles followed, and the particular conclusions reached in this book. At the same time, I am as sensible as ever of the hypothetical nature of much that is advanced in it. It has been my wish and intention to draw, as sharply as possible, the line of demarcation between my facts and the hypothesis by which I have attempted to colligate them. Hypotheses are necessary but often temporary bridges built to connect isolated facts. If my light bridges should sooner or later break down or be superseded by more solid structures, hope that my book may still have its utility and its interest as a repertory of facts but while my views tentative and provisional as they properly are thus remain much what they were there is one subject on which they have undergone a certain amount of change unless intended it might be more exact to say that i seem to see clearly now what before was hazy i meant the relation of magic to religion when I first wrote this book, I failed, perhaps inexcusably, to define even to myself my notion of religion, hence was disposed to class magic loosely under it as one of its lower forms. I have now sought to remedy this defect by framing as clear a definition of religion as the difficult nature of the subject and my apprehension of it allowed. Hence I have come to agree with Sir A. C. Lyell and Mr. F. B. Jevons in recognising a fundamental distinction and even opposition of principle between magic and religion. More than that, I believe that in the evolution of thought, magic as representing a lower intellectual stratum has probably everywhere preceded religion. I do not claim any originality for this latter view. It has been already plainly suggested, if not definitely formulated, by Professor H. Oldenburg in his able book De Religion des Vida and for aught I know it may have been explicitly stated by many others before and since him. I have not collected the opinions of the learned on the subject, but have striven to form my own directly from the facts, and the facts which bespeak the priority of magic over religion are many and weighty. Some of them the reader will find stated in the following pages, but the full force of the evidence can only be appreciated by those who have made a long and patient study of primitive superstition. I venture to think that those who submit to this drudgery will come more and more to the opinion I have indicated. That all my readers should agree either with my definition of religion or with the inferences I have drawn from it is not to be expected. But I would ask those who dissent from my conclusions to make sure that they mean the same thing by religion that I do, for otherwise the difference between us may be more apparent than real. As the scope and purpose of my book have been seriously misconceived by some courteous critics, I desire to repeat in more explicit language what I vainly thought I had made quite clear in my original preface, that this is not a general treatise on primitive superstition, but merely the investigation of one particular and narrowly limited problem. To it the rule of the Arician priesthood 
and that accordingly only such general principles are explained and illustrated in the course of it as seems to me to throw light on that special problem if i had said little or nothing of other principles of equal even greater importance is assuredly not because i undervalued them in comparison with those which i have expounded at some length but simply because it appeared to me that they did not directly bear on the question i had set myself to answer no one can well be more sensible than i am of the immense variety and complexity of the forces which have gone towards the building up of religion no one can recognize more frankly the futility and inherent absurdity of any attempt to explain the whole vast organism as a product of any one simple factor if i had hitherto touched i am quite aware only the fringe of a great subject fingered only a few of the countless threads that compose the mighty web it is merely because neither my time nor my knowledge has hitherto allowed me to do more should i live to complete the works for which i have collected and am collecting materials i dare to think that they will clear me of any suspicion of treating the early history of religion from a single narrow point of view but the future is necessarily uncertain and at the best many years must elapse before i can execute the full and plan which i have traced out for myself meanwhile i am unwilling by keeping silence to some more of my readers an impression that my outlook on so large a subject does not reach beyond the bounds of the present inquiry this is my reason for noticing the misconceptions to which i have referred i take leave to add that some part of my larger plan would probably have been completed before now were it not that out of the ten years which i have passed since this book was first published nearly eight have been spent by me in work of a different kind there is a misunderstanding of another sort which i feel constrained as i write but i do so with great reluctance because it compels me to express a measure of dissent from the revered friend and master to whom i am under the deepest obligations and who has passed beyond the reach of controversy in an elaborate and learned essay on sacrifice el annie sociologique duxem annie eighteen ninety seven eighteen ninety eight messrs h hubert and m morse have represented my theory of the slain god as intended to supplement and complete robertson smith's theory of the derivation of animal sacrifice in general from a totem sacrament on this i have to say that the two theories are quite independent of each other i never assented to my friend's theory and so far as i can remember he never gave me a hint that he assented to mine my reason for suspending my judgment in regard to his theory was a simple one at the time when the theory was propounded and for many years afterwards i knew of no single indubitable case of a total sacrament that is of a custom of killing and eating the totem animal as a solemn rite it is true that in my totemism and again in the present work i noted a few cases for an all of solemnly killing a sacred animal which following robertson smith i regard as probably a totem but none even of these four cases included the eating of the sacred animal by the worshippers which was an essential part of my friend's theory and in regard to all of them it was not positively known that the slain animal was a totem hence as time went on and still no certain case of a totem sacrament was reported i became more and more doubtful of the existence of such a practice at all and my doubts are almost hardened into incredulity when the long looked-for right was discovered by messrs spencer and gillen in full force among the aborigines of central australia whom i for one must consider to be the most primitive totem tribes as yet known to us 
This discovery I welcomed as a very striking proof of the sagacity of my brilliant friend, whose rapid genius had outstripped our slower methods and anticipated what it was reserved for subsequent research positively to ascertain. Thus from being little more than an ingenious hypothesis, the totem sacrament has become, at least in my opinion, a well-authenticated fact. But from the practice of the rite by a single set of tribes, it is still a long step to the universal practice of it by all totem tribes, and from that again, it is a still longer stride to the deduction, their form of animal sacrifice in general. These two steps I have not yet prepared to take. No one will welcome further evidence of the wide prevalence of a totem sacrament more warmly than I shall, but until it is forthcoming shall continue to agree with Professor E. B. Tyler that it is unsafe to make the custom the base of far-reaching speculations. To conclude this subject, I will add that the doctrine of the universality of totemism, which Messrs. Hubert and Morse have implicitly attributed to me, is one which I have never enunciated or assumed and that as far as my knowledge and opinion go, the worship of trees and cereals, which occupies so large a space in these volumes, is neither identical with nor derived from a system of totemism. It is possible that further inquiry may lead me to regard as probable the universality of totemism and the derivation from it of sacrifice and the whole worship both of plants and animals. I hold myself ready to follow the evidence, wherever it may lead. By the present state of our knowledge, I consider that to accept these conclusions would be not to follow the evidence, but very seriously to outrun it, in thinking I am happy to be at one with Messrs. Hubert and Morse. When I am on this theme, I may as well say that I am by no means prepared to stand by everything in my little apprentice work, Totemism. That book was a rough piece of pioneering in the field that till then has been but little explored, and some inferences in it were almost certainly too hasty. In particular, there was a tendency perhaps not unnatural in the circumstances to treat as totems, or as connected with totemism, things which probably were neither the one nor the other. If I ever republish the volume, as I hope one day to do, I shall have to retrench it in some directions as well as to enlarge it in others. Such as it is with all its limitations which I have tried to indicate clearly, or with all its defects which I leave to the critics to discover, I offer my book in its new form as a contribution to that still youthful science which seeks to trace the growth of human thought and institutions in those dark ages which lie beyond the range of history. The progress of that science must need to be slow and painful, for the evidence, though clear and abundant on some sides, is lamentably obscure and scanty on others, so that the cautious inquirers, every now and then brought up sharp on the edge of some yawning chasm, across which he may be quite unable to find a way. All he can do in such a case is to mark the pitfall plainly in his chart, and to hope that others, in time, may be able to fill it up or bridge it over. Yet the very difficulty and novelty of the investigation, coupled with the extent of the intellectual prospect which suddenly opens up before us whenever the mist rises and unfolds, the far horizon constitute no small part of its charm. The position of the anthropologist of today resembles, in some sort, the position of classical scholars at the revival of learning. To these men the rediscovery of ancient literature came like a revelation, disclosing to their wandering eyes a splendid vision of the antique world, such as the cloistered student of the Middle Ages never dreamed of under the gloomy shadow of the minister and within the sound of its solemn bells. To us moderns a still wider vista is vouchsafed. 
a greater panorama is unrolled by the study which aims at bringing home to us the faith and the practice the hopes and the ideals not of two highly gifted races only but of all mankind and thus at enabling us to follow the long march the slow and toilsome ascent of humanity from savagery to civilization and as the scholar of the renaissance found not merely fresh food for thought but a new field of labour in the dusty and faded manuscripts of greece and rome so in the mass of materials that is steadily pouring in from many sides from buried cities of remotest antiquity as well as from the rudest savages of the desert and the jungle we of to-day must recognise a new province of knowledge which will task the energies of generations of students to master the study is still in its rudiments and what we do now will have to be done over again and done better with fuller knowledge and deeper insight by those who came after us to recur to a metaphor which i have already made use of we of this age are only pioneers hewing lanes and clearing in the forest where others will hereafter sow and reap but the comparative study of the beliefs and institutions of mankind is fitted to be much more than a means of satisfying and enlightened curiosity and of furnishing materials for the researchers of the learned well handled it may become a powerful instrument to expedite progress if it lays bare certain weak spots in the foundations on which modern society is built if it shews that much which we are wont to regard as solid rests on the sands of superstition rather than on the rock of nature it is indeed a melancholy and in some respects thankless task to strike at the foundations of beliefs in which as in a strong tower the hopes and aspirations of humanity through long ages have sought a refuge from the storm and stress of life yet sooner or later it is inevitable that the battery of the comparative method should breach these venerable walls mantled over with the ivy and mosses and wild flowers of a thousand tender and sacred associations at present we are only dragging the guns into position they have hardly yet begun to speak the task of building up into fairer and more enduring forms the old structures so rudely shadowed is reserved for other hands perhaps for other than happier ages we cannot foresee we can hardly even guess the new forms into which thought and society will run in the future it is uncertainly ought not to induce us from any consideration of expediency or regard for antiquity to spare the ancient moles however beautiful when these are proved to be outworn whatever comes of it wherever it leads us we must follow truth alone it is our only guiding star signal vinces to a passage in my book it has been objected by a distinguished scholar that the church bells of rome cannot be heard even in the stillest weather on the shores of the lake of nemi in acknowledging my blunder and leaving it uncorrected may i plead an extenuation of my obduracy an example of an illustrious writer in old mortality we read how a hunted covenanter fleeing before cleveland houses dragoons hears the sullen boom of the kettle drums of the pursuing cavalry borne to him on the night wind when scott was taken to task for this description because the drums are not beaten by cavalry at night he replied in effect they like to hear the drums sounding there and they would let them sound on so long as his book might last in the same spirit i must boldly say that by the lake of nemi i love to hear if it be only in imagination the distant chiming of the bells of rome and i would fain believe 
that their airy music may ring in the ears of my readers after it has ceased to vibrate in my own. J. G. Fraser, Cambridge, 18th of September, 1900 End of Section 0 Preface Section 1 of The Golden Bough, Volume 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 1. The King of the Wood. The still glassy lake that sleeps beneath Odysseus' trees, those trees in whose dim shadow the ghastly priest doth reign, the priest who slew the slayer and shall himself be slain. Macaulay. 1. Diana and Verbius The Lake of Nemai Who does not know Turner's picture of the golden bough, the scene suffused with the golden glow of imagination in which the divine mind of Turner, steeped and transfigured, even the fairest natural landscape, is a dreamlike vision of the little woodland lake of Nemi, Diana's mirror, as it was called by the ancients. No one who has seen that calm water, lapped in a green hollow of the Alban hills, can ever forget it. The two characteristic Italian villages which slumber on its banks, and the equally Italian palace whose terraced gardens descend steeply to the lake, hardly break the stillness and even the solitariness of the scene. Diane herself might still linger by this lonely shore, still haunt these woodlands wild. Its Tragic Memories In antiquity, this sylvan landscape was the scene of a strange and recurring tragedy. In order to understand it aright, we must try to form in our minds an accurate picture of the place where it happened, for, as we shall see later on, a subtle link subsisted between the natural beauty of the spot and the dark crimes which under the mask of religion were often perpetrated there, crimes which after the lapse of so many ages still lent a touch of melancholy to these quiet woods and waters, like a chill breath of autumn on one of those bright September days while not a leaf seems faded. The Alban Hills the Alban Hills are a fine, bold group of volcanic mountains which rise abruptly from the Campagna in full view of Rome, forming the last spur set out by the Apennines towards the sea. Two of the extinct craters are now filled by two beautiful waters, the Alban Lake and its lesser sister, the Lake of Nemi. Both lie far below the monastery crown top of Monte Cavo, the summit of the range, but yet so high above the plain that standing on the rim of the larger crater at Castel Gandolfo, where the popes had their summer palace, you look down on the one hand into the Alban Lake, and on the other away across the Campagna to where, on the western horizon, the sea flashes like a broad sheet of burnished gold in the sun. The Sanctuary of Diana Nemorensis The Lake of Nemi is still, as of old embowered in woods, where in spring the wild flowers blow as fresh as no doubt they did two thousand springs ago. It lies so deep down in the old crater that the calm surface of its clear water is seldom ruffled by the wind. On all sides but one the banks, thickly mantled with luxuriant vegetation, descends steeply to the water's edge. Only on the north a stretch of flat ground intervenes between the lake and the foot of the hills. This was the scene of the tragedy. Here in the very heart of the wooded hills, under the abrupt declivity now crested by the village of Nemi, the sylvan goddess Diana had an old and famous sanctuary the resort of pilgrims from all parts of Latium. 
it was known as the sacred grove of diana nimorensis that is diana of the wood or perhaps more exactly diana of the woodland glade sometimes the lake and grove were called after the nearest town the lake and grove aricia by the town the modern aricia lay three miles away at the foot of the mountains and separated from the lake by a long and steep descent a spacious terrace or platform containing the sanctuary on the north and east it was bounded by great retaining walls which cut into the hillsides and served to support them semicircular niches sunk in the walls and faced with columns formed a series of chapels which in modern times have yielded a rich harvest of votive offerings on the side of the lake the terrace rested on a mighty wall over seven hundred feet long by thirty feet high built in triangular buttresses like those which we see in front of the piers or bridges to break floating ice at present this terrace wall stands back some hundred yards from the lake in other days its buttresses may have been lapped by the water compared with the extent of the sacred precinct the temple itself was not large but its remains proved to have been neatly and solidly built of massive blocks of peperino and adorned with doric columns of the same material elaborate cornices of marble and friezes of terracotta contributed to the outward splendour of the edifice which appears to have been further enhanced by tiles of gilt bronze wealth and popularity of the shrine the great wealth and popularity of the sanctuary in antiquity are attested by ancient writers as well as by the remains which have come to light in modern times in the civil war its sacred treasures went to replenish the empty coffers of octavian who well understood the useful art of thus securing the divine assistance if not the divine blessing for the furtherance of his ends but we are not told that he treated diana on this occasion as civilly as his divine uncle julius caesar once treated capitoline jupiter himself bowing three thousand pounds weight of solid gold from the god and scrupulously paying him back in the same weight of gilt copper however the sanctuary at nemi recovered from this drain on its resources for two centuries later it was still reputed one of the richest in italy ovid has described the walls hung with fillets and commemorative tablets and the abundance of cheap votive offerings and copper coins which the site has yielded in our own day speaks volumes for the piety and numbers if not for the opulence and liberality of the worshippers swarms of beggars used to stream forth daily from the slums of Arica and take their stand on the long slope up which the labouring horses dragged well-to-do pilgrims to the shrine and according to the response which their whines and importunities met with they blew kisses or his curses after the carriage as they swept rapidly downhill again even peoples and potentates of the east did homage to the lady of the lake by setting up monuments in her sanctuary and within the precinct stood shrines of the egyptian goddess isis and Bubastis with a store of gorgeous jewellery roman villas at nimai the retirement of the spot and the beauty of the landscape naturally tempted some of the luxurious roman nobles to fix their summer residences by the lake here julius caesar had a house to which on a day in early summer only two months after the murder of his illustrious namesake he invited cicero to meet the assassin brutus the emperors themselves appear to have been partial to a retreat where they could find repose from the cares of state and the bustle of the great city in the fresh air of the lake and the stillness of the woods here julius caesar built himself a costly villa but pulled it down because it was not to his mind here caligula had two magnificent barges or rather floating palaces launched for him on the lake and it was while dallying in the woods of nemi that the sluggard vitellius received the tidings of a revolt 
which woke him from his dream of pleasure and called him to arms. Vespasian had a monument dedicated to his honour in the grove by the Senate and peoples of Attica. Trajan consented to fill the chief magistracy of the town, and Hadrian indulged his taste for architecture by restoring a structure which had been erected in the precinct by a prince of the royal house of Parthia. Diana is the mistress of wild animals. Such, then, was the sanctuary of Diana at Nemi, a fitting home for the mistress of mountains and forests green and lonely glades and surrounding rivers, as Catullus calls her. Multitudes of her statutes, appropriately clad in a short tunic and high buskin of a huntress, with the quiver slung over her shoulder, have been found on the spot. Some of them represent her with her bow in her hand, or her hound at her side. Bronze and iron spears and images of stags and hinds discovered within the precinct may have been offerings of huntsmen to the huntress goddess for success in the chase. Similarly, the bronze tridents, which have also come to light at Nemi, were perhaps presented by fishermen who had speared fish in the lake, or maybe by hunters who had stabbed boars in the forest. The wild boar was still hunted in Italy down to the end of the first century of our era, for the younger Pliny tells us how, with his usual charming affection, he sat meditating and reading by the nets, while three fine boys fell into them. Indeed, some fourteen hundred years later, boar hunting was a favourite pastime of Pope Leo X. A frieze of painted reliefs in terracotta, which was found in the sanctuary at Nemi, and may have adorned Diana's temple, betrays a goddess in the character of what is called the Asiatic Artemis, with wings sprouting from her waist, and a lion resting its paws on each of her shoulders. A few rude images of cows, oxen, horses, and pigs dug up on the site may perhaps indicate that Diana was here worshipped as a patroness of domestic animals as well as the wild creatures of the wood. Diana is a patroness of cattle. In like manner her Greek counterpart Artemis was a goddess not only of game but of herds. Thus a sanctuary in the highlands of northwest Arcadia between Clotor and Scynthae owned sacred cattle which were driven off by Italian freebooters on one of their forays. When Xenophon returned from the wars and settled on his estate among the wooded hills and green meadows of the rich valley through which the Alpheus flows past Olympia, he dedicated to Artemis a little temple on the model of her great temple at Ephesus, surrounded it with a grove of all kinds of fruit trees, and doubted not only with a chase but also with a sacred pasture. The chase abounded in fish and game of all sorts, and the pasture sufficed to rear swine, goats, oxen, and horses, and on her yearly festival the pious soldiers sacrificed to the goddess a tithe boat of the cattle from the sacred pasture and of the game from the sacred chase. Again the people of Hyampolis in Phocis worshipped Artemis and thought that no cattle throve like those which they dedicated to her. Perhaps the images of cattle found in Diana's present at Nemi were offered to her by herdsmen to ensure her blessing on their herds. Analogy of St. Leonard in Germany In Catholic Germany, at the present time, the great patron of cattle, horses and pigs is St. Leonard, and models of cattle, horses and pigs are dedicated to him, sometimes in order to ensure the health and increase of the flocks and herds through the coming year, sometimes in order to obtain the recovery of sick animals. And curiously enough, like Diana of Arica, St. Leonard is also expected to help women in travel and to bless barren wives of offspring. Nor do these points exhaust the analogy between St. Leonard and Diana of Erica. For like the goddess, the saint heals the sick, he is a patron of prisoners, as she was of runaway slaves, and his shrines, like hers, enjoyed the right of asylum. Nemi, 
an image of Italy in the olden time. So to the last, in spite of a few villas peeping out here and there from among the trees, Nemi seems to have remained in some sense an image of what Italy had been in the far-off days when the land was still sparsely peopled, and tribes of savage hunters or wandering herdsmen, when the beechwoods and, and oakwoods, with their deciduous foliage, reddening in the autumn and barren winter, had not yet begun, under the hand of man to yield to the evergreens of the south, the laurel, the olive, the cypress, and the oleander still less to those intruders of a later age which nowadays we are apt to think of as characteristically italian the lemon and the orange rule of succession to the priesthood of Emma at nemi however it was not merely in its natural surroundings that this ancient shrine of the sylvan goddess continued to be a type or a miniature of the past down to the decline of rome a custom was observed there which seems to transport us at once from civilization to savagery in the sacred grove there grew a certain tree round which at any time of the day and probably far into the night a grim figure might be seen to prowl in his hand he carried a drawn sword and he kept peering warily about him as if at every instant he expected to be set upon by an enemy he was a priest and a murderer and the man for whom he looked was sooner or later to murder him and hold the priesthood in his stead such was the rule of the sanctuary a candidate for the priesthood could only succeed to office by slaying the priest and having slain him he retained office till he was himself slain by a stronger or a craftier the priest who slew the slayer the post which he held by his precarious tenure carried with it the title of king but surely no crowned head ever lay uneasier or was visited by more evil dreams than his for year in year out in summer and winter in fair weather and in foul he had to keep his lonely watch and whenever he snatched a troubled slumber it was the peril of his life the least relaxation of his vigilance the smallest abatement of his strength of limb or skill of fence put him in jeopardy grey hairs might seal his death warrant his eyes probably acquired that restless watchful look which among the eskimos of bering strait is still to betray infallibility the shedder of blood for with that papal revenge is a sacred duty and the manslayer carries his life in his hand to gentle and pious pilgrims at the shrine the sight of him might well seem to darken the fair landscape as when a cloud suddenly blots the sun on a bright day the dreamy blue of italian skies the dappled shade of summer woods and the sparkle of waves in the sun can have accorded but ill with the stern and sinister figure rather we picture to ourselves a scene as it may have been witnessed by a belated wayfarer on one of those wild autumn nights when the dead leaves are falling thick and the winds seem to sing the dirge of the dying year it is a sombre picture set to melancholy music the background of forest showing black and jagged against the lowering and stormy sky the sight of the wind in the branches the rustle of the withered leaves underfoot the lapping of the cold water on the shore and the foreground pacing to and fro now in twilight now in gloom a dark figure with a glitter of steel at the shoulder whenever the pale moon riding clear of the cloud rack peers down at him through the matted boughs possibility of explaining the rule of succession by the comparative method the strange rule of this priesthood has no parallel in classical antiquity and cannot be explained from it to find an explanation we must go farther afield no one will probably deny that such a custom savours of a barbarous age and surviving into imperial times stands out in striking isolation on the polished italian society of the day like a primeval rock rising from a smooth-shaven lawn 
it is the very rudeness and barbarity of the custom which allows us a hope of explaining it for recent researches into the early history of man have revealed the essential similarity with which under many superficial differences the human mind has elaborated its first crude philosophy of life accordingly if we can show that a barbarous custom like that of the priesthood of nemi has existed elsewhere if we can detect the motives which led to its institution if we can prove that these motives have operated widely perhaps universally in human society producing in varied circumstances a variety of institutions specifically different but generally alike if we can show lastly that these very motives with some of their derivative institutions were actually at work in classical antiquity then we may fairly infer that at a remoter age the same motives gave birth to the priesthood of Neme. Such an inference and default direct evidence as to how the priesthood did actually arise can never amount to demonstration, but it will be more or less probable according to the degree of completeness with which it fulfills the conditions I have indicated. The object of this book is, by meeting these conditions, to offer a fairly probable explanation of the priesthood of Neme. Legend of the Origin of the Nemi Worship Orestes and the Tauric Diana I begin by setting forth the few facts and legends which have come down to us on the subject. According to one story, the worship of Diana and Nemi was instituted by Orestes, who after killing Theos, king of the Tauric Chersonese, the Crimea, fled with his sister to Italy, bringing with him the image of the Tauric Diana hidden in a faggot of sticks. After his death, his bones were transported from Erica to Rome and buried in front of the temple of Saturn on the Capitoline slope beside the temple of Concord. The bloody ritual which a legend described to the Tauric Diana is familiar to classical readers. It is said that every stranger who landed on the shore was sacrificed on her altar. By transport to Italy, the rite assumed a milder form. The King of the Wood Within the sanctuary at Nemoi grew a certain tree of which no branch might be broken. Only a runaway slave was allowed to break off, if he could, one of the boughs. Success in the attempt entitled him to fight the priest in single combat, and if he slew him, he reigned in his stead with the title of King of the Wood, Rex Nemorensis. According to the public opinion of the ancients, the faithful branch was the golden bough, which at the Sable's bidding Aeneas plucked before he essayed the perilous journey to the world of the dead. The flight of the slave represented it was said, the flight of Orestes. His combat with the priest was a reminiscence of the human sacrifices once offered to the Tauric Diana. This rule of succession by the sword was observed down on imperial times, for amongst his other freaks, Caligula, thinking that the priest of Nemi had held office too long, hired a more stalwart ruffian to slay him, and the Greek traveller who visited Italy in the age of the Antonines remarks that down to his time the priesthood was still the prize of victory in a single combat chief features of the worship of diana and nemi of the worship of diana at nemi some standing features can still be made out from the votive offerings which have been found on the site it appears that she was conceived of specially as a huntress and further as blessing men and women with offspring and granting expectant mothers an easy delivery Importance of fire in her ritual. Again, fire seems to have played a foremost part in her ritual, for during her annual festival, held on the 13th of August, at the hottest time of the year, her grove shone with a multitude of torches, whose ruddy glare was reflected by the lake. 
and throughout the length and breadth of Italy the day was kept with holy rites at every domestic hearth. Bronze statutes found no present represent the goddess herself holding a torch in her raised right hand, and women whose prayers had been heard by her came crowned with wreaths and bearing lighted torches to the sanctuary in fulfilment of their vows. Some one unknown dedicated a perpetually burning lamp in a little shrine at Neme for the safety of the emperor Claudius and his family. The terracotta lamps which have been discovered in the grove may perhaps have served like a purpose for humbler persons. If so, the analogy of the custom to the Catholic practice of dedicating holy candles in churches would be obvious. Diana as Vesta Further, the title of Vesta borne by Diana and Neme points clearly to the maintenance of a perpetual holy fire in her sanctuary. A large circular basement at the north-east corner of the temple raised on three steps and bearing traces of a mosaic pavement, probably supported a round temple of Diana in her character of Vesta, like the round temple of Vesta in the Roman Forum. Here the sacred fire would seem to have been tended by Vestal virgins, for the head of a Vestal in terracotta was found on the spot, and the worship of a perpetual fire cared for by holy maidens appears to have been common in Latinum from the earliest to the latest times. Thus we know that among the ruins of Alba, the Vesta fire was kept burning by Vestal virgins, bound to strict chastity, until the end of the 4th century of our era. There were Vestals at Tiber, and doubtless also at Lavinium, for the Roman consuls, praetors and dictators had to sacrifice to Vesta at the ancient city where they entered on or laid down their office. Diana's festival on August 13, converted by the Christian Church into the festival of the Assumption of the Virgin on August 15. At her annual festival, which, as we have just seen, was celebrated all over Italy on the 13th of August, hunting dogs were crowned and wild beasts were not molested. Young people went through a purifactory ceremony in her honour. Wine was brought forth, and the feast consisted of a kid cake served piping hot on plates of leaves and apples still hanging in clusters on the boughs. The Christian church appears to have sanctified this great festival of the Virgin Goddess by adroitly converting it to the festival of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin on the 15th of August. The discrepancy of two days between the dates of the festivals is not a fatal argument against their identity, for a similar displacement of two days occurs in the case of St. George's Festival on the 23rd of April, which is probably identical in the ancient Roman festival of the Parilla on April 21st. On the reasons which prompted this conversion of the festival of the Virgin Diana into the festival of the Virgin Mary, some light is thrown by a passage in the Syriac text of The Departure of My Lady Mary from This World, which runs thus. And the apostles also ordered that there should be a commemoration of the Blessed One on the 13th of Ab, that is August, another MS reads the 15th of Ab, on account of the vines bearing bunches of grapes, and on account of the trees bearing fruit, and clouds of hail bearing stones of wrath, why not come, and the trees be broken, and their fruits, and the vines with their clusters? The Virgin Mary seems to have succeeded Artemis and Diana as a patroness of the ripening fruits. Here the festival of the Assumption of the Virgin is definitely said to have been fixed on the 13th or 15th of August for the sake of protecting the ripening grapes and other fruits. Similarly, in the Arabic text of the apocryphal work on the passing of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is attributed to the Apostle John, there occurs the following passage. Also a festival in her honour was instituted on the fifteenth day of the month of Ab, that is August, which is the day of her passing from this world, the day on which the miracles were performed, 
and the time when the fruits of trees are ripening further in the calendars of the syrian church the fifteenth of august is repeatedly designated as a festival of the mother of god or the vines and to this day in greece the ripening grapes and other fruits are brought to the churches to be blessed by the priests on the fifteenth of august now we hear of vineyards and plantations dedicated to artemis fruits offered to her and her temple standing in the orchard hence we may conjecture that her italian sister diana was also revered as a patroness of vines and fruit trees and that on the thirteenth of august the owners of the vineyards and orchards paid their respects to her at nemi along with other classes of the community we have just seen that wine and apples still hanging on the boughs formed part of the festal cheer on that day in an ancient fresco found at ostia a statue of diana is depicted in company with a procession of children some of whom bear clusters of grapes and in a series of gems the goddess is represented with a branch of fruit in one hand and a cup which is sometimes full of fruit on the other catullus too tells us that diana filled the husbandman's barns with a bounteous harvest survival of diana's festival in italy sicily and scandinavia in some parts of italy and sicily the day of the assumption of the virgin is still celebrated like diana's day of old with illuminations and bonfires in many sicilian parishes the corn is then brought in sacks to the churches to be blessed and many persons who have a favour to ask of the virgin vow to abstain from one or more kinds of fruit during the first fifteen days of august even in scandinavia a relic of the worship of diana survived in the custom of blessing the fruits of the earth of every sort which in catholic times was annually observed on the festival of the assumption of the virgin the virgin mary and the goddess anatus there is no intrinsic improbability in the view that for the sake of edification the church may have converted a real heathen festival into a nominal christian one similarly in the armenian church according to the express evidence of the armenian fathers of the year seven hundred and later the day of the virgin was placed on september the fifteenth because that was the day of anahite the magnificence of whose feast the christian doctors hoped thereby to transfer to mary this anahite or anatus as the greeks called her the armenian predecessor of the virgin mary was a great oriental goddess whose worship was exceedingly popular not only in armenia but in the adjoining countries the loose character of her rites is plainly indicated by strabo himself a native of these regions the thirteenth of august a harvest festival among the celts of gaul among the ancient celts of gaul who to judge by their speech were near kinsmen of the ancient latins the thirteenth of august appears to have been the day when the harvest was dedicated to the harvest god rivers if that were so we may conjecture that the choice of a day in mid-august for the solemn celebration of the harvest home dates from the remote time when the ancestors of the celtic and italian peoples having renounced the wandering life of the huntsmen and herdsmen had settled down together in some land of fertile soil and temperate climate where harvest fell neither so late as after the cool rainy summers of the north nor so early as before the torrid and rainless summers of southern europe Egeria, water-nymph and wife of numa but diana did not reign alone in her grove in nemi two lesser divinities shared her forest sanctuary one was Egeria, the nymph of the clear water which bubbling from the basaltic rocks used to fall in graceful cascades into the lake at the place called limol 
because here were established the mills of the modern village of Nemai. The purling of the stream as it ran over the pebbles is mentioned by Ovid, who tells us that he had often drunk of its water. Women and child used to sacrifice to Egeria because she was believed, like Diana, to be able to grant them an easy delivery. Tradition ran that the nymph had been the wife or mistress of the wise king Numa, that he had consorted with her in the sanctuary of the sacred grove, and that the laws which he gave the Romans had been inspired by communion with her divinity. Plutarch compares the legend with other tales of the loves of goddesses for mortal men, such as the love of Cybele and the moon for the fair youth Addis and Edimion. According to some, the trysting place of the lovers was not in the woods of Nemi, but in a grove outside the dripping Porta Capena at Rome, where another sacred spring of Egeria gushed from a dark cavern. Every day the Roman Vestals fetched water from this spring to wash the temple of Vesta, carrying it in earthenware pitchers on their heads. In Jovenel's time the natural rock had been encased in marble, and the hollow spot was profaned by gangs of poor Jews who were suffered to squat, like gypsies, in the grove. We may suppose that the spring which fell into the lake of Nemai was the true original Egeria, and that when the first settlers moved down from the Alban hills to the banks of the Tiber, they brought the nymph with them, and found a new home for her in a grove outside the gates. The remains of baths which have been discovered within the sacred precinct, together with many terracotta models of various parts of the human body, suggest that the waters of Egeria were used to heal the sick, who may have signified their hopes or testified their gratitude by dedicating likenesses of the diseased members to the goddess in accordance with a custom which is still observed in many parts of Europe. To this day it would seem that the spring retains medicinal virtues. Verbius, the male companion of Diana. The other of the minor deities in Nemai was Verbius. Legend had it that Verbius was a young Greek hero, Hippolytus, chaste and fair, who learned the art of venery from the centaur Chiron, and spent all his days in the greenwood chasing wild beasts with the virgin huntress Artemis, the Greek counterpart of Diana. For his only comrade, proud of her divine society, he spurned the love of women, and this proved his pain. For Aphrodite, stung by his scorn, inspired his stepmother, Phaedra, with love of him, and when he disdained her wicked advances, she falsely accused him to his father, Theseus. The slander was believed, and Theseus prayed to his sire Poseidon to avenge the imagined wrong. So while Hippolytus drove in a chariot by the shore of the Saronic Gulf, the sea-god sent a fierce bull force from the waves. The terrified horses bolted, threw Hippolytus from the chariot, and dragged him at their hoofs to death. But Diana, for the love she bore, Hippolytus persuaded the leech Aesculapius to bring her fair young hunter back to life by his symbols. Jupiter, indignant that a mortal man should return from the gates of death, thrust down the meddling leech himself to Hades, but Diana did her favourite from the angry god in a thick cloud, disguised his features by adding years to his life, and then bore him far away to the deal to the dells of Nemai, where she entrusted him to the nymph Egeria to live there, unknown and solitary, under the name of Verbius, in the depth of the Italian forest. There he reigned a king, and there he dedicated a precinct to Diana. He had a comely son, Verbius, who, undaunted by his father's fate, drove a team of fiery steeds to join the Latins in the war against Aeneas and the Trojans. Verbius was worshipped as a god, not only in Nemai but elsewhere. 
for in Campania we hear of a special priest devoted to his service. Horses were excluded from the Aratrician grove and sanctuary because horses had killed Hippolytus. It was unlawful to touch his image. Some thought he was the son, but the truth is, says Servius, that he is a deity associated with Dana, as Attis is associated with the mother of the gods, and Erichthonius with Minerva, and Adonis with Venus. What the nature of that association was, we shall inquire presently. Here is worth observing that in his long and checkered career, this mythical personage has displayed a remarkable tendency of life, for we can highly doubt that the Saint Hippolytus of the Roman calendar, who was dragged by horses to death on the 13th of August, died on his own day, is no other than the Greek hero of the same name, who after dying twice over as a heathen sinner, has been happily resuscitated as a Christian saint. The Legends of Nemai Invented to Explain the Ritual it needs no elaborate demonstration to convince us that the stories told to account for Diana's worship in Nemi are unhistorical. Clearly they belong to that large class of myths which are made up to explain the origin of a religious ritual and have no other foundation than the resemblance, real or imaginary, which may be traced between it and some foreign ritual. The incongruity of these Nemi myths is indeed transparent, since the foundation of the worship is traced now to Orestes, and now to Hippolytus, according as this or that feature of the ritual has to be accounted for. The real value of such tales is that they serve to illustrate the nature of the worship by providing a standard with which to compare it, and further, that they bear witness indirectly to its venerable age by showing that the true origin was lost in the myths of a fabulous antiquity. Tradition that the Grove of Nemi was dedicated by a Latin dictator in the latter respect, these Nemi legends are probably more to be entrusted than the apparently historical tradition vouched for by Cato the Elder, that the sacred grove was dedicated to Diana by a certain Egarius Babius, or Levius of Tusculum, a Latin dictator, on behalf of the peoples of Tusculum, Arica, Lanuvium, Laurentium, Cora, Tiber, Pomentia, and Ardia. This tradition indeed sparks for the great age of the sanctuary, since it seems to date its foundation sometime before 495 BC, the year in which Pomentia was sacked by the Romans and disappears from history. But we cannot suppose that so barbarous a rule as that of the Arician priesthood was deliberately instituted by a league of civilized communities, such as the Latin cities undoubtedly were. It must have been handed down from a time beyond the memory of man when Italy was still in a far ruder state than any known to us in the historical period. The credit of the tradition is rather shaken than confirmed by another story, which ascribes the foundation of the sanctuary to a certain Manius Agarius, who gave rise to the saying, There are many Manii in Arichia. This proverb some explained by alleging that Manius Agarius was the ancestor of a long and distinguished line, whereas others thought it meant that there were many ugly and devoured people at Arichia, and they derive the name Manius from Mania, a bogey or bugbear to frighten children. A Roman satirist uses the name Manius as typical of the beggars who lay in wait for pilgrims on the Arician slopes. These differences of opinion, together with the discrepancy between Manius Agarius of Arician and Agarius Levius of Tusculum, as well as the resemblance of both names to the mythical Agaria, excite our suspicion. Yet the tradition recorded by Cato seems too circumstantial and sponsor too respectful to allow us to dismiss it as an idle fiction. 
Rather, we may suppose that it refers to some ancient restoration or reconstruction of the sanctuary, which was actually carried out by the Confederate States. At any rate, it testifies to a belief that the grove had been from early times a common place of worship for many of the oldest cities of the country, if not for the whole Latin Confederacy. Evidence of the Antiquity of the Grove Another argument of antiquity may be drawn from some of the votive offerings found on the spot, such as a sacrificial ladle of bronze bearing Dinah's name in archaic Greek letters, and pieces of the oldest kind of Italian money being merely shapeless bits of copper, unstamped and valued by weight. But as the use of such old-fashioned money survived in offerings to the gods long after vanished from daily life, no great stress can be laid on its occurrence at Nemai's evidence of the age of the shrine. Origin of the Arcadian Myths of Orestes and Hippolytus Part 2. Artemis and Hippolytus I have said that the Arician legends of Orestes and Hippolytus, though worthless as history, have a certain value in so far as they may help us to understand the worship at Nimai better than comparing it with the ritual and myths of other sanctuaries. We must ask ourselves, why do the authors of these legends pitch upon Orestes and Hippolytus in order to explain Verbius and the King of the Wood? In regard to Orestes, the answer is obvious. He and the image of the Tauric Diana, which could only be appeased with human blood, were dragged in to render intelligible the murderous rule of succession to the Arician priesthood. In regard to Hippolytus, the case is not so plain. The manner of his death suggests readily enough a reason for the exclusion of horses from the grove. This by itself seems hardly enough to account for the identification. We must try to probe deeper by examining the worship as well as the legendal myth of Hippolytus. Worship of Hippolytus at Troenzen He had a famous sanctuary at his ancestral home of Troezen, situated on the beautiful, almost landlocked bay, with groves of oranges and lemons, with tall cypresses soaring like dark spires above the garden of the Hesperides, now clothed the strip of fertile shore at the foot of the rugged mountains, across the blue water of the tranquil bay, which had sheltered from the open sea, rises Poseidon's sacred island, its peaks failed in the sombre green of the pines. On this fair coast, Hippolytus was worshipped. Within his sanctuary stood a temple with an ancient image. His service was performed by a priest who held office for life. Every year, a sacrificial festival was held in his honour, and this untimely fate was yearly mourned with weeping and doleful chants by unwedded maids who also dedicated locks of their hair in his temple before marriage. Hippolytus, a mythical being of the Adonis type. His grave existed of Truzen, though the people would not show it. It has been suggested with great plausibility that in the handsome Hippolytus, beloved of Artemis, cut off in his youthful prime, the usually mourned by damsels, we have one of those mortal lovers of a goddess who appears so often in ancient religion and of whom Adonis is the most familiar type. The rivalry of Artemis and Phaedra for the affection of Hippolytus reproduces, it is said, under different names, the rivalry of Aphrodite and Proserpine for the love of Adonis, for Phaedra is merely a double of Aphrodite. Certainly in the Hippolytus of Euripides, the tragedy of the hero's death is traced directly to the anger of Aphrodite and his contempt for her power, and Phaedra is nothing but a tool of the goddess. Moreover, within the precinct of Hippolytus and Troezen, there stood a temple of peeping Aphrodite, which was so named, we are told, because from this spot 
the amorous Phaedra used to watch Hippolytus at his manly sports. Clearly the name would be still more appropriate if it was Aphrodite herself who peeped, and beside this temple of Aphrodite grew a myrtle tree with pierced leaves, which the hapless Phaedra, in the pangs of love, had pricked with her bodkin. Now the myrtle with its glossy evergreen leaves, its red and white blossom, and its fragrant perfume was Aphrodite's own tree, the legend associated with the birth of Adonis. At Athens, also Hippolytus was intimately associated with Aphrodite, for on the south side of the Acropolis, looking towards Troezen, a barrow of sepulchral mound in his memory was shown, and beside it stood a temple of Aphrodite, said to be founded by Phaedra, which bore the name of the temple of Aphrodite at Hippolytus. The conjunction, both in Troezen and Athens, of his grave with the temple of the goddess of love is significant. Later on we shall meet with mounds in which the lovers of the great Asiatic goddess were said to lie buried. The divine mistresses of Hippolytus associated with Oaks. In this view of the relation of Hippolytus to Artemis and Aphrodite's right, it is somewhat remarkable that both his divine mistresses appear to have been associated at Troezen with Oaks, for Aphrodite was here worshipped under the title of Ascuria, that is, she of the fruitless oak, and Hippolytus was said to have met his death not far from the sanctuary of Saronian Artemis, that is, Artemis of the hollow oak, for here the wild olive tree was shown in which the reins of his chariot became entangled, and so brought him to the ground. Orestes at Troezen It may not be without significance that Orestes, the other mythical hero of Nemai, also appears in the legendary history of Troezen. For at Troezen there was a temple of wolfish Artemis, said to have been dedicated by Hippolytus, and in front of the temple stood a sacred stone upon which nine men, according to the legend, had cleansed Orestes from the guilt of his mother's murder. In the solemn rite they made use of water drawn from the horse's fount, and as late as the second century of our era their descendants dined together on certain set days in a building called the Booth of Orestes. Before the building there grew a laurel tree, which was said to have sprung on the spot where the things used when purifying the matricide were buried. The old traveller Pausanias, to whom we owe so much of our knowledge of ancient Greece, could not learn why Hippolytus dedicated a temple to bullfish Artemis, but he conjectured that it might have been because he extirpated the packs of wolves that used to scour the country. Hippolytus in relation to horses and wolves Another point in the myth of Hippolytus which deserves attention is the frequent recurrence of horses in it. His name signifies either horse loosed or horse looser. He consecrated twenty horses to Aescalopes at Epidaurus. He was killed by horses. The horse's font probably flowed not far from the temple which he built for wolfish Artemis, and the horses were sacred to his grandsire Poseidon, who had an ancient sanctuary in the wooded island across the bay where the ruins of it may still be seen in the pine forest. Lastly, Hippolytus' sanctuary at Troezen was said to have been founded by Diomede, whose mythical connection both with horses and wolves is attested. For the Veneti, at the head of the Adriatic, were famed for their breed of horses, and they had a sacred grove of Diomede at the spot where many springs birth forth from the foot of a lofty cliff, forming at once the broad and deep river Timavas, the modern Timao which flows with a still and tranquil current into the neighbouring sea. Here the Vendetti sacrificed a white horse to Diomede, 
and associated with his grove were two others, sacred to Argivera and Aetolian Artemis. In these groves, wild beasts were reported to lose their ferocity and deer to herd with wolves. Moreover, the horses of the district, famed for their speed, were said to have been branded with the mark of a wolf. Thus Hippolytus was associated with the horse in many ways, and this association may have been used to explain more features of the Arusian ritual than the mere exclusion of the animal from the sacred grove. To this point we shall return later on, whether his relation to wolves was also invoked to account for any other aspect of the worship of Nemi, we cannot say, since the wolf plays no part in the scanty notices of that worship which have come down to us, but doubtless, as one of the wild creatures of the wood, the beast would be under the special care of Diana. Hair offered before marriage to Hippolytus and others. The custom observed by Trozanian girls of offering tresses of their hair to Hippolytus before their wedding brings him into a relation with marriage, which at first sight seems out of keeping with his reputation as a confirmed bachelor. According to Lucian, youths as well as maidens at Troezen were forbidden to wed till they had shorn their hair in honour of Hippolytus, and we gather from the context that it was their first beard which the young men thus pulled. However we may explain it, a custom of this sort appears to have prevailed widely both in Greece and the East. Plutarch tells us that formerly it was the want of boys at puberty to go to Delphi and offer of their hair to Apollo. Theseus, the father of Hippolytus, complied with the custom, which lasted down into historical times. Argive maidens, grown to womanhood, dedicated their tresses to Athena before marriage. On the same occasion, Megarian girls poured libations and laid clippings of their hair on the tomb of the maiden Iphino. At the entrance of the temple of Artemis and Delos, the grave of two maidens was shown under an olive tree. It was said that long ago they had come as pilgrims from a far northern land with offerings to Apollo, and dying in the sacred isle were buried there. The Delian virgins, before marriage, used to cut off a lock of their hair, wind it on a spindle, and lay it on the maiden's grave. Young men did the same, except that they twisted it down of their first beard round a wisp of grasp or a green shoot. In some places it was Artemis who received the offering of a maiden's hair before marriage. At Panamara, in Cara, men dedicated locks of their hair in the temple of Zeus. The locks were enclosed in little stone boxes, some of them fitted with a marble little shutter, and the name of the dedicator was engraved on a square sinking in the stone together with the name of the priest for the time being. Many of these inscribed boxes have been found of late years on the spot. None of them bear the names of women. Some of them are inscribed with the names of the father and his sons, or the dedications are to Zeus alone, though Hera was also worshipped with him at Panamara. At Heropolis, on the Euphrates, youths offered of their beards and girls of their tresses to the great Syrian goddess and left the shorn hair in caskets of gold or silver, inscribed with their names, and nailed to the walls of the temple. The custom of dedicating the first beard seems to have been common at Rome under the empire. Thus Nero consecrated his first beard in a golden box, studded with costly pearls on the capital. Such offerings intended to communicate strength of fertility, Egyptian practice. Some light is perhaps thrown on the meaning of these practices by two ancient oriental customs, the one Egyptian, the other Phoenician. When Egyptian boys and girls had received from sickness, their parents used to shave the children's heads, weigh the hair against gold or silver, 
and give the precious metal to the keepers of the sacred beasts who brought food with it for the animals according to their tastes these tastes varied with the nature of the beast and the beast varied with the district where hawks were worshipped the keepers chopped up flesh and calling the birds in a loud voice flung the goblets up into the air till the hawks stooped and caught them where cats or ignumens or fish were the local deities the keepers crumbled bread in milk and set it before them or threw it into the nile and similarly were the rest of the divine menagerie thus in egypt the offerings of hair went to feed the worshipful animals syrian practice sacrifice of chastity regarded as a substitute for the sacrifice of hair in the sanctuary of the great phoenician goddess astarte at byblus the practice was different here at the annual mourning for the dead adonis the women had to shave their heads and such of them as refused to do so were bound to prostitute themselves to strangers and to sacrifice to the goddess of the wages of their shame though lucian who mentions the custom does not say so there are some grounds for thinking that the women in question were generally maidens of whom the sect of devotion was required as a preliminary to marriage in any case it is clear that the goddess accepted the sacrifice of chastity as a substitute for the sacrifice of hair why by many people as we shall afterwards see the hair is regarded as in a special sense the seat of strength and at puberty it might well be thought to contain a double portion of vital energy since at the season it is the outward sign and manifestation of the newly acquired power of reproducing the species for that reason we do suppose the beard rather than the hair of the head is offered by males on this occasion thus the substitution permitted at byblus becomes intelligible the women gave their fecundity to the goddess whether they offered their hair or their chastity but why it may be asked should they make such an offering to astarte who was herself the great goddess of love and fertility what need had she to receive fecundity from her worshippers was it not for her to bestow it on them thus put the question overlooks an important side of polytheism perhaps we may say of ancient religion in general the gods stood as much in need of their worshippers as the worshippers needed them the benefits conferred were mutual if the gods made the earth to bring forth abundantly the flocks and herds to tame and the human race to multiply they expected that a portion of their bounty should be returned to them in the shape of tithe or tribute on this tithe indeed they subsisted and without it they would starve their divine bellies had to be filled and their divine reproductive energies to be recruited hence men had to give of their meat and drink to them and to sacrifice for their benefit what is most manly in man and womanly in woman sacrifices of the latter kind have too often been overlooked or misunderstood by the historians of religion other examples of them will meet us in the course of our inquiry at the same time it may well be that the women who offered their hair to a study hope to benefit through the sympathetic connection which they thus established between themselves and the goddess they may in fact have expected to fecundate themselves by contact with the divine source of fecundity and it is probable that a similar motive underlay the sacrifice of chastity as well as the sacrifice of hair hair offered to rivers as sources of fertility if the sacrifice of hair especially of hair at puberty is sometimes intended to strengthen the divine beings to whom it is offered by feeding or fertilizing them we can the better understood not only the common practice of offering hair to the shadowy dead but also the greek usage of shearing it for rivers as the arcadian boys of figalia did for the stream that runs in the depths of the tremendous woody glen below the city for next perhaps the rain and sunshine 
Nothing in nature so obviously contributes to fertilize a country as its rivers. Again, this view may set in a clearer light the custom of the Delian youths and maidens, who offered their hair on the maiden's tomb under the olive tree. Delos and Delphi as centres of fertilization and of fire. For at Delos, as at Delphi, one of Apollo's many functions was to make the crops grow and to fill the husbandman's barns. At the time of harvest, tithe offerings poured in to him from every side in the form of ripe sheaves, or, what was perhaps still more acceptable, golden models of them, which went by the name of the Golden Summer. The festival at which these first fruits were dedicated, and seventh of the harvest month, Thargelion, corresponding to the 24th and 25th of May, for these were the birthdays of Artemis and Apollo, respectively. In Hesiod's day, the corn reaping began at the morning rising of the Flydes, which then answered to our ninth of May, and in Greece the wheat is still ripe about that time. In return for these offerings, the gods sent about a sacred new fire from both his great sanctuaries at Delos and Delphi, thus radiating from them, as from central suns, the divine blessings of heat and light. A ship brought the new fire every year from Delos to Lemnos, the sacred island of the fire god Hephaestus, where all fires were put out before its arrival, to be afterwards rekindled at the pure flame. The fetching of the new fire from Delphi to Athens appears to have been a ceremony of great solemnity and pomp. All of the chief Athenian magistrates repaired to Delphi for the purpose. The holy fire blazed was smouldered in a sacred tripod borne on a chariot and tethered by a woman who was called the fire-bearer. Soldiers, both horse and foot, escorted it. Magistrates, priests and heralds accompanied it, and the procession moved to the music of trumpet and fife. We do not know on what occasion the fire was thus solemnly sent from Delphi to Athens, but we may conjecture that it was when the Pythiasts at Athens, watching from the hearth of lightning Zeus, saw lightning flash over Harma on Mount Parnes, for then they sent a sacrifice to Delphi and may have received the fire in return. After the great defeat to the Persians at Plataea, the people of that city extinguished all the fires in the country, deeming them defiled by the presence of the barbarians. Having done so, they relit them at a pure new fire fetched by a runner from the altar of the common hearth at Delphi. The Graves of Apollo and Artemis at Delos Now the maidens on whose gave the Delian youths and damsels laid their shorn locks before marriage were said to have died in the island after bringing the harvest offering, wrapped in wheat and straw from the land of the Hyperboreans in the far north. Thus they were in popular opinion the mythical representatives of those bands of worshippers who bore, year by year, the yellow sheaves with dance and song to Delos. But in fact they had once been much more than this. For an examination of their names, which are commonly given as Hercarriage and Opus, has led modern scholars to conclude with every appearance of probability that these maidens were originally mere duplicates of Artemis herself. Perhaps indeed we may go a step farther. For sometimes one of this pair of Hyperboreans appears as a male, not a female, under the name of fire-shooter, Hekergos, which was a common epithet of Apollo. This suggests that the two were originally the heavenly twins themselves, Apollo and Artemis, and that the two greys which were shown at Delos, one before and the other behind the sanctuary of Artemis, may have been at first the tombs of these great deities, who were thus laid to their rest on the spot where they had been born. As the one grave received offerings of hair, so the other received the ashes of the victims which were burned on the altar. Both sacrifices, if I am right, 
were designed to strengthen and fertilize the divine powers who made the earth to wave with the golden harvest and whose mortal remains like the miracle-working bones of saints in the middle ages brought wealth to their fortunate possessors ancient pity was not shocked by the sight of the tomb of a dead god the grave of apollo himself was shown at his other great sanctuary of delphi and this perhaps explains his disappearance at delos the priests of the rival shrines may have calculated that one tomb sufficed even for a god and that two might prove a stumbling block to any but the most robust faith acting on this prudent conviction they may have adjusted their respective claims to the possession of the holy sepulchre by leaving apollo to sleep undisturbed at delphi while his grave at delos was dexterously converted into a tomb of a blessed virgin by the easy grammatical change of hecargos to hecarge hippolytus and artemis but how it may be asked does all this apply to hippolytus why attempt to fertilize the grave of a bachelor who paid all his devotions to a barren virgin what seed could take root and spring up in so stony a soil the question implies the popular modern notion of diana or artemis as a pattern of a straight-laced maiden lady with a taste for hunting artemis a goddess of the wild life of nature no notion could well be further from the truth to the ancients on the contrary she was the ideal and embodiment of the wild life of nature the life of plants of animals and of men in all its exuberant fertility and profusion as a recent german writer has admirably put it from of old a great goddess of nature was everywhere worshipped in greece she was revered on the mountain heights as in the swampy lowlands and in rustling woods and by the murmuring spring to the greek her hand was everywhere apparent he saw her gracious blessing in the sprouting meadow in the ripening corn in the healthful vigour of all living things on earth whether the wild creatures of the wood and the fell or the cattle which man has tamed to his service or man's an offspring from the cradle upward her destroying anger he perceived in the blight of vegetation in the inroads of wild beasts on his fields and orchards as well as in the last mysterious end of life in death no empty personification like the earth conceived as a goddess was this deity for such abstractions are foreign to every primitive religion she was an all-embracing power of nature everywhere the object of a similar faith however her names differed with the place in which she was believed to abide with the emphasis laid on her gloomy or kindly spirit or with the particular side of her energy which was specially revered and as the greek divide everything in animated nature into male and female he could not imagine this female power of nature without her male counterpart artemis not originally regarded as a virgin hence in a number of her older worshippers we find artemis associated with a nature god of similar character to whom tradition assigned different names in different places in laconia for instance she was mated with the old peloponnesian god carniosis in arcadia more than once with poseidon elsewhere with zeus apollo dionysus and so on the truth is that the word parthenos applied to artemis which we commonly translate virgin means no more than an unmarried woman and in early days the two things were by no means the same with the growth of a pure morality among men a stricter code of ethics is imposed by them upon their gods the stories of the cruelty deceit and lust for these divine beings are glossed slightly over or flatly rejected as blasphemies and the old ruffians are set to guard the laws which before they broke in regard to artemis even the ambiguous parthenos seems to have been merely a popular epithet not an official title 
Artemis, a goddess of childbirth. As Dr. Farnell has well pointed out, there was no public worship of Artemis the chaste. So far as her sacred titles bear on the relation of the sexes, they show that, on the contrary, she was, like Diana, in Italy, especially concerned with a loss of virginity and with childbearing, and that she was not only assisted, but encouraged women to be fruitful and multiply. Indeed, if we may take Europide's word for it in her capacity of midwife, she would not even speak to childless women. Further, it is highly significant that while her titles and the allusions to her functions mark out her clearly as the patroness of childbirth, we find none that recognize her distinctly as the deity of marriage. Nothing, however, sets the true character of Artemis as a goddess of fecundity, though not a wedlock, in a clearer light than her constant identification with the unmarried but not the chaste. Asiatic goddesses of love and fertility, who were worshipped with rites of notorious profligacy at their popular sanctuaries. The Ephesian Artemis At Ephesus, the most celebrated of all the seats of her worship, her universal motherhood, was set forth unmistakably in her sacred image. Copies of it have come down to us which agree in their main features, though they differ from each other in some details. They represent the goddess with a multitude of protruding breasts. The heads of animals of many kinds, both wild and tame, spring from the front of her body in a series of bands that extend from the breasts to the feet. Bees, roses, and sometimes butterflies decorate her sides from the hips downward. The animals that thus appear to issue from her person vary in the different copies of the statue. They include lions, bulls, stags, horses, goats, and rams. Moreover, lions rest on her upper arms. In at least one copy, serpents twine round her lower arms. Her bosom is festooned with a wreath of blossoms, and she wears a necklace of acorns. In one of the statues, the breast of her robe is decorated with two winged male figures, who hold sheaves in both hands. It would be hard to devise a more expressive symbol of exuberant fertility or profligate maternity than these remarkable images. No doubt the Ephesian Artemis, with her eunuch priests and virgin priestesses, was an oriental whose worship the great colonists took over from the aborigines but that they should have adopted it and identified the goddess with their own artemis is proof enough that the greek divinity like her asiatic sister was at bottom a personification of the taming life of nature hippolytus the male consort of artemis to return now to troezen we shall probably be doing no injustice either to hippolytus or to artemis if we suppose that the relation between them was once of a tender nature than appears in classical literature. We may conjecture that if he spurned the love of women, it was because he enjoyed the love of goddesses. On the principles of early religion, she who fertilizes nature must herself be fertile, and to be that she must necessarily have a male consort. If I am right, Hippolytus was the consort of Artemis at Troezen, and the shorn tresses offered to him by the Troezenian youths and maidens before marriage were designed to strengthen his union with the goddess, and so to promote the fruitfulness of the earth, of cattle, and of mankind. It is some confirmation of this view that with the precinct of Hippolytus at Trozen, there were worshipped two female powers named Damia and Oxesia, whose connection with the fertility of the ground is unquestionable. When Epidaurus suffered from a dearth, the people, in obedience to an oracle, carved images of Damia and Oxesia, out of sacred olive wood, and no sooner had they done so, and set them up, the earth bore fruit again. Moreover, Atroezen itself, 
and apparently within the precinct of Hippolytus, a curious festival of stone throwing was held in honour of these maidens, as the Trozenians called them, and it is easy to show that similar customs have been practised in many lands for the express purpose of ensuring good crops. In the story of the tragic death of the youthful Hippolytus, we may discern an analogy with similar tales of other fair by mortal use who paid with their lives for the brief rapture of the love of a mortal goddess. The hapless lovers were probably not always mere youths, and the legends which trace their spilt blood on the purple bloom of the violet, the scarlet stain of the anemone, or the crimson flush of the rose, were no idle poetic emblems of youth and beauty, fleeting as the summer flowers. Such fables contain a deeper philosophy of the relation of the life of man to the life of nature, a sad philosophy which gave birth to a tragic practice. What that philosophy and that practice were, we shall learn later on. 3. Recapitulation Verbius, the male consort of Diana We can now perhaps understand why the ancients identified Hippolytus, the consort of Artemis, with Verbius, who, according to Servius, stood to Diana as Adonis to Venus, or Attis to the mother of the gods. For Diana, like Artemis, was a goddess of fertility in general, and of childbirth in particular. As such, she, like her Greek counterpart, needed a male partner. That partner, if Servius is right, was Verbius. In his character of the founder of the sacred grove and first king of Nemi, Verbius is clearly the mythical predecessor or archetype of the line of priests who served Diana under the title of kings of the wood and who came, like him, one after the other to a violent end. It is natural, therefore, to conjecture that they stood to the goddess of the grove in the same relation in which Verbius stood to her, in short, that the mortal king of the wood, and for his queen, the woodland diner herself, in the sacred tree which he guarded with his life was supposed, as seems probable, to be her special embodiment, her priest may not only have worshipped it as his goddess, but embraced it as his wife. There is at least nothing absurd in the supposition, since even in the time of Pliny, a noble Roman, used thus to treat a beautiful beech tree in another sacred grove of Diana on the Alpine hills. He embraced it, he kissed it, as he lay under its shadow. He poured wine on its trunk. Apparently he took the tree for the goddess. The custom of physically marrying men and women to trees is still practiced in India and other parts of the East. Why should it not have obtained ancient Latium? Summary of Results Reviewing the evidence as a whole, we may conclude that the worship of Diana and her sacred grove in Nemi was of great importance and immemorial antiquity, that she was revered as the goddess of woodlands and of wild creatures, probably also of domestic cattle, and of the fruits of the earth, that she was believed to bless men and women of offspring and to aid mothers in childbirth, that her holy fire, tended by chaste virgins, burned perpetually in a round temple within the prison that associated with her was a water nymph, Egeria, who discharged one of Diana's own functions by succouring women in travail, and who was popularly supposed to have mated with an old Roman king in the sacred grove. Further, that Diana of the wood herself had a male companion, Verbius by name, who was to her what Adonis was to Venus, or Addis to Cybele, and lastly, that this mythical Verbius was represented in historical times by a line of priests known as kings of the wood, who regularly perished by the swords of their successors, and his lives were in a manner bound up with a certain tree in the grove, because so long as that tree was uninjured, they were safe from attack. The double-headed bust at Nemi, probably a portrait of the king of the wood and his successor. A curious monument of the ill-fated dynasty appears to have come down to us in a double-headed bust, 
which was found in the sanctuary at Nimai. It represents two men of heavy and somewhat coarse features and a grim expression. The type of face is similar in both heads, but there are marked differences between them. For while the one is young and beardless, with shut lips and a steadfast gaze, the other is a man of middle life with a tossed and matted beard, wrinkled brows, a wild anxious look in the eyes, and an open and grinning mouth. But perhaps the most singular thing about the two heads are the leaves with scalloped edges which are plastered, so to say, on the necks of both busts, and apparently also under the eyes of the younger figure. The leaves have been interpreted as oak leaves, and this interpretation, which is not free from doubt, is confirmed by the resemblance of an oak leaf, which the moustache of the older figure clearly presents when viewed in profile. Various explanations of this remarkable monument have been proposed, but the most probable theory appears to be that the older figure represents the priest of Nimai, the king of the wood, in possession, while the other face is that of his youthful adversary and possible successor. This theory would explain the coarse, heavy type of both faces, which is neither Greek nor Roman, but apparently barbarian. For as the priest of Nemai had always to be a runaway slave, he would commonly be a member of an alien and barbarous race. Further, it would explain the striking contrast between the set, determined gaze of the younger man and the haggard, scarred look of the other. On the one face we seem to read the resolution to kill, on the other, the fear to die. Lastly, it would explain very simply the leaves that cling, like sermons, to the necks and breasts of both, for we shall see later on that the priest was probably regarded as an embodiment of the tree which he guarded. Human representatives of tree spirits are most naturally draped in the foliage of the tree which they personate. Hence, the leaves on the two heads are indeed oak leaves, as they have been thought to be, we should have to conclude that the tree which the king of the wood guarded and personated was an oak. There are indebted reasons for holding that this was so, but the consideration of them must be deferred for the present. A wide survey required to solve the problem of Nemai. Clearly, these conclusions do not of themselves suffice to explain the peculiar rule of succession to the priesthood, but perhaps the survey of a wider field may lead us to think that they contain, in germ, the solution of the problem. To that wider survey we must now address ourselves. It will be long and laborious, but may possess something of the interest and charm of a voyage of discovery, in which we shall visit many strange foreign lands, with strange foreign peoples, and still stranger customs. The wind is in the shrouds. We shake ourselves to it, and leave the coasts of Italy behind us for a time. End of section 1「Section 2 of The Golden Bough, Volume 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 2. Priestly Kings The Two Questions to be Answered The questions which we have set ourselves to answer are mainly two. First, why had Diana's priest at Nimai, the king of the wood, to slay his predecessor? Second, why before doing so had he to pluck the branch of a certain tree which the public opinion of the ancients identified with Virgil's golden bough? The two questions are to some extent distinct, and it will be convenient to consider them separately. We begin with the first, which, with the preliminary inquiries, will occupy this and several following volumes. In the last part of the book, I shall suggest an answer to the second question. The first point on which we fasten 
is the priest's title? Why was he called the king of the wood? Why was his office spoken of as a kingdom? Priestly kings in ancient Italy and Greece The union of a royal title with priestly duties was common in ancient Italy and Greece. At Rome and in other cities of Latium, there was a priest called the Sacrificial King or King of the Sacred Rites, and his wife bore the title of Queen of the Sacred Rites. In Republican Athens, the second annual magistrate of the state was called the King and his wife the Queen. The functions of both were religious. For example, the King superintended the celebration of the Eleusinian Mysteries, the Linnaean Festival of Dionysus, and the torch races which were held at several of the great Athenian festivals. Moreover, he presided at the curious trials of animals and inanimate objects which had caused the death of a human being. To him, in short, were assigned, in the words of Plato, the most solemn and most truly ancestral rites of the ancestral sacrifices. Many other Greek democracies had titular kings whose duties, so far as they are known, seem to have been priestly and to have centred round the common hearth of the state. For example, in Kos, the king sacrificed to Hestia, the goddess of the hearth, the equivalent of the Italian Vesta, and he received the hide and one leg of the victim as his prerequisite. In Mytilene, the kings, of whom there were several, invited to banquets at the common hearth those guests whom the state delighted to honour. In Chios, if any herdsman or shepherd drove his cows, his sheep, or his swine to pasture in a sacred grove, the first person who witnessed the transgression was bound to denounce the transgressor to the kings, under pain of incurring the wrath of the god, and what was perhaps even worse, of having to pay a fine to the offended deity. In the same island, the king was charged with the duty of pronouncing the public curses. A spiritual weapon of which much use was made by the ancients. Every eighth year the king at Delphi took part in a quaint ceremony. He sat in public distributing barley meal and pulse to all who chose to apply for the bounty, whether citizens or strangers. Then an image of a girl was brought to him, and he slapped it with his shoe. After that, the president of the Theades, a college of women devoted to the orgiastic worship of Bacchus, carried away the image to a ravine, and they buried it with a rope round its neck. The ceremony was said to be an expiation for the death of a girl who, in a time of famine, had been publicly buffeted by the king, and smarting out of the insult, had hanged herself. In some cities, such as Megara, Agosthena, and Pegae, the kingship was an annual office, and the three years were dated by the king's names. The people of Prain appointed a young man king for the purpose of sacrificing a bull to Poseidon at the Pannonian festival. Some Greek states had several of these titular kings who held office simultaneously. Traditional Origin of These Priestly Kings At Rome, the tradition was that the sacrificial king had been appointed after the abolition of the monarchy in order to offer the sacrifices which before had been offered by the kings. A similar view as to the origin of the priestly kings appears to have prevailed in Greece. In itself, the opinion is not improbable, as it is borne out by the example of Sparta, almost the only purely Greek state which retained the kingly form of government in historical times. For in Sparta, all state sacrifices were offered by the kings as descendants of the god. One of the two Spartan kings held the priesthood of Zeus, Lacedaemon, the other the priesthood of Heavenly Zeus. Sometimes the descendants of the old kings were allowed to retain this shadowy royalty after the real power had departed from them. Thus at Ephesus, the descendants of the Ionian kings who traced their pedigree 
Ducotus of Athens, kept the title of king, and certain privileges, such as the right to occupy a seat of honour at the games, to wear a purple robe and carry a staff instead of a sceptre, and to preside at the rites of Eleusinian Demeter. So at Cyrene, when the monarchy was abolished, the deposed king Betus was assigned certain domains and allowed to retain some priestly functions. Thus the classical evidence points to the conclusion that the prehistoric ages, before the rise of the republican form of government, the various tribes of cities were ruled by kings who discharged priestly duties and probably enjoyed a sacred character as reputed descendants of deities. Priestly kings in various parts of the world This combination of priestly functions with royal authority is familiar to everyone. Asia Minor, for example, was the seat of various great religious capitals peopled by thousands of sacred slaves and ruled by pontiffs who wielded at once temporal and spiritual authority over the popes of medieval Rome. Such priest-ridden cities were Zella and Pessinus. Teutonic kings again in the old heathen days seem to have stood in the position and to have exercised the powers of high priests. The emperors of China offer public sacrifices, the details of which are regulated by the ritual books. The king of Madagascar was high priest of the realm. At the great festival of the new year, when a bullock was sacrificed for the good of the kingdom, the king stood over the sacrifice to offer prayer and thanksgiving while his attendants slaughtered the animal. In the monarchical states which still maintain their independence among the galas of eastern Africa, the king sacrifices on the mountain tops and regulates the immolation of human victims, and the dim light of tradition reveals a similar union of temporal and spiritual power of royal and priestly duties. In the kings of that delightful region of Central America, whose ancient capital now buried under the rank growth of the tropical forest, is marked by the stately and mysterious ruins of Palenque. Among the Matabeles, the king is high priest. Every year he offers sacrifices at the great and the little dance and also at the festival of the new fruits, which ends the dances. On these occasions he prays to the spirits of his forefathers and likewise to his own spirit, for it is from these higher powers that he expects every blessing. Divinity of Kings this last example is instructive because it shows that the king is something more than a priest. He prays not only to the spirits of his fathers, but to his own spirit. He is clearly raised above the standard of mere humanity. There is something divine about him. The Spartan king, supposed to be attended by Castor and Pollux, who were thought to manifest themselves in certain electric lights, Similarly, we may suppose that the Spartan kings were thought not only to be descended from the great god Zeus, but also to partake of his Holy Spirit. This is indeed indicated by a curious Spartan belief, which has been recorded by Herodotus. The old historian tells us that formerly both of the Spartan kings went forth with the army to battle, and that, in later times, a rule was made that when one king marched out to fight, the other should stay at home, and accordingly says Herodotus, one of the kings remaining at home, one of the Tindarids is left there too, for hitherto both of them were invoked and followed the kings. The Tindarids are of course the heavenly twins Castor and Pollux, the sons of Zeus, and it should be remembered that the two Spartan kings themselves were believed to be descended from twins, and hence may have been credited with the wondrous powers which superstition often associates with twins. The belief described by Herodotus plainly implies that one of the heavenly twins was supposed to be in constant attendance on each of their human kinsmen, the two Spartan kings, staying with them where they stayed and going with them wherever they went. 
hence they were probably thought to aid the kings with their advice in time of need now castor and pollux are commonly represented as spearmen and they were constantly associated or identified not only with stars but also with those lurid lights which in an atmosphere charged with electricity are sometimes seen to play around the masts of ships under a murky sky moreover similar lights were observed by the ancients to glitter in the darkness on the points of spears pliny tells us that he had seen such lambent flames on the spears of roman sentinels as they paced their rounds by night in front of the camp it is said that cossacks riding across the steeps on stormy nights perceive flickering of the same sort of their lance-heads. Since, therefore, the divine brothers Castor and Pollux were believed to attend the Spartan kings, it seems not impossible that they may have been thought to accompany the march of a Spartan army in a visible form, appearing to the awe-stricken soldiers in the twilight or the darkness, either as stars in the sky or as the sheen of spears on earth. Perhaps the stories of the appearance of the heavenly twins in battle, charging on their milk-white steeds at the head of the earthly cavalry, may have originated in similar lights seen to glitter in the gloaming on a point here and there in the long hedge of levelled or ported spears. For any two riders on white horses, whose spearheads happen to be touched by the mystic light, might easily be taken for Castor and Pollux in person. If there is any truth in this conjecture, we shall conclude that the divine brothers were never seen in broad day but only at dusk or in the darkness of night now the most famous appearance was at the battle of lake regulus as to which we are expressly told that it was late in the evening of a summer day before the fighting was over such statements should not be lightly dismissed as late inventions of a rhetorical historian the memories of great battles linger on among the peasantry of the neighbourhood the divinity of kings in early society but when we have said that the ancient kings were commonly priests too, we are far from having exhausted the religious aspect of their office. In those days the divinity that hedges a king was no empty form of speech, but the expression of a sober belief. Kings were revered, in many cases not merely as priests, that is, as intercessors between man and God, but as gods themselves, able to bestow upon their subjects and worshippers those blessings which are commonly supposed to be beyond the reach of mortals and a sort if at all only by prayer and sacrifice offered to superhuman and invisible beings thus kings are often expected to give rain and sunshine in due season to make the crops grow and so on strange as this expectation appears to us it is quite of a piece with early modes of thought a savage hardly conceives the distinction commonly drawn by more advanced peoples between the natural and the supernatural to whom the world is to a great extent worked by supernatural agents that is by personal beings acting on impulses and motives like his own liable like him to be moved by appeals to their pity their hopes and their fears in a world so conceived he sees no limit to his power of influencing the course of nature to his own advantage prayers promises or threats may secure him fine weather and an abundant crop from the gods and if a god should happen as he sometimes believes to become incarnate in his own person then he need appeal to no higher being either savage possesses in himself all the powers necessary to further his own well-being and that of his fellow-men sympathetic magic this is one way in which the idea of a man god is reached but there is another along with the view of the world as pervaded by spiritual forces 
savage man has a different and probably still older conception in which we may detect a germ of the modern notion of natural law or the view of nature as a series of events occurring in an invariable order without the intervention of personal agency the germ of which i speak is involved in that sympathetic magic as it may be called which plays a large part in most systems of superstition in early society the king is frequently a magician as well as a priest indeed he appears to have often attained to power by virtue of his supposed proficiency in the black and white art hence in order to understand the evolution of the kingship and the sacred character with which the office has commonly been invested in the eyes of savages or barbarous peoples it is essential to have some acquaintance with the principles of magic and to form some conception of the extraordinary hold which that ancient system of superstition has had on the human mind in all ages and all countries accordingly i propose to consider this subject in some detail end of section two